Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. Hey, Kristen. How's it going this week? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm excited because later you're going to be talking to W. Kamau Bell about the new season of his show, United Shades of America. Uh, yes, uh, very excited to talk with him a little bit about that show. And Kristen, I'm excited to talk about all the shows this week uh, for different reasons, um, especially because we'll be revisiting uh, one show and diving into a couple of new Netflix shows. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's just start off with our uh, What's New segment in which we talk about the week's most notable new and returning show premieres. But we're going to kick things off this week by revisiting a show we discussed a month ago when it returned for its second season, HBO's Barry. Uh, The dark comedy stars Bill Hader as a hitman who's trying to become an actor. And it just marked the halfway point of its second season this past weekend, April 28th, with an episode that was, for lack of a better term, batshit insane. Um, Episode five is called Ronnie slash Lily. While it had a lot of the hallmarks of a typical Barry episode, in many ways, it was a complete and unexpected departure. So it starts with Barry hiding in the house of a, a guy named Ronnie. This is the man that Detective John Loach wants Barry to kill because Ronnie stole Loach's wife, blah, blah, blah. Barry doesn't want to kill people anymore, so he decides to try to talk Ronnie into hiding out in Chicago for a year. But Ronnie is not interested in this suggestion. And what follows is an epic, exhaustive, and exhausting nearly 10-minute fight scene. Did I mention that Ronnie is an Olympic taekwondo champion? (laughs) So that's when things get weird. Uh, Ronnie's young daughter, also a taekwondo whiz, comes home to find Barry in her house and her dad incapacitated, and she is not happy. In fact, she is a freakishly fast little fighting machine who can climb buildings like Spider-Man and might just be able to fly. Anyhow, she stabs Barry in the back and then flees, and for the rest of the episode, Barry weaves in and out of consciousness as he and Fuchs, played by Stephen Root, drive around trying to find the little girl. Barry and Fuchs are both convinced that the little girl is, quote, not of this world, that she's not human, and they both basically accept this as reality, so I guess 13 episodes in, Barry has become a supernatural show. <laughs> Even better, though, I think there's a really good chance that this freakish occurrence uh, is really not going to be addressed again. Like, the existence of this demon girl is just not really going to be dealt with anymore, and I kind of love that. Uh, this episode is what you would call a big swing, Darren. What did you think of it? Uh, I really enjoyed it, Kristen. When when Barry came back for its second season, we both kind of talked about um, one interesting thing about this show is that we both really loved its first season. Um, but uh, I think we're somewhat cautious about what it meant that it was coming back for a season two after having such a great finale. And I feel like in general, I've been more optimistic about the show. And I'll be honest, with last week's episode, like when we were kind of at the episode four mark, I was starting to get a little little concerned. It just sort of felt to me as if season two hadn't quite found the same rhythm as season one when it came to just like mixing together really, really funny moments with really, really dark thriller, you know, you know, set pieces. Right. And this episode, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it felt like a sort of great little standalone story, almost kind of told in real time or at yes. least real time or at least told in real time, except for when Barry, you know, <laughs> passes out from blood loss, which happens <laughs> on more than one occasion in the episode. He's so um, pale 
It's just awful. He's, he, he's so pale and, and, you know, he is just so continually almost kind of mournful about the fact that he needs medical attention. Um, but, you know, never being too pressing about it, just kind of very kindly like fuchs, like I'm, I'm dying. You have to take me to a doctor. And, you know, meanwhile, Stephen Root, who as fukes, he's kind of the one part of this season that I just feel like is so triple A rock solid. Yes. I mean, what, a, what a great actor who just keeps on finding more reservoirs of awful behavior in yes. this guy. Like every time you think you kind of have a handle on just how bad Fuchs is, you know, he spends a lot of this episode telling Barry, you have to kill this little girl, yeah. which sounds so awful, but in context is really fun. Um, it, I was especially interested kind of watching this, Kristen, because it felt a little bit to me once they started having serious fight sequences, both in a house and ultimately in a supermarket. Yes. Almost like I was watching the darkest timeline version of Cobra Kai. Um, <laughs> just, you know, these incredible sort of fight scenes between Barry and this guy and his daughter and there's kind of other you know, people that get involved towards the end of, of, of the episode. Um, just a lot going on. How did you feel in general, Kristen, about this episode in the context of uh, this season of, of Barry? Well, it's funny because it's just so strange. And, you know, I liked that they were trying to do something new because, you know, as we talked about, it is hard to sustain a story like this. And it did have such a perfect ending at the end of season one. And I like that uh, as they're trying to extricate Barry from this life that we all know he's never going to be able to leave, really, uh, that they're, they're not just sort of relying on, well, oh, there's a cop who knows what he did. And so what's going to happen with that? Or, you know, will his girlfriend find out? It's not these sort of typical questions. It's really getting into this is sort of existential and and supernatural <laughs> element like one of the other elements when he passes out and he's ha- he's like on the verge of death he's having this vision these visions of almost like the afterlife and it's this very haunting scene it's an open field where soldiers are crossing a vast field to reunite with their loved ones and who's waiting for Barry but Fuchs and Fuchs is all clean cut in a suit and he's gesturing to Barry you know follow me follow me and it's almost like you know, you know, if he follows Fuchs, uh, which he does in real life, but if he follows him in this scenario, too, it's almost like, does that mean he dies? And it's kind of like he's realizing, like, if I stay with this guy, I'm going to die. And yet it's impossible for him to get away from this guy. Yeah. And, you know, we should call out Bill Hader, who gives such a good performance in this episode, first uh, underneath a mask, um, and then, again, just slowly bleeding out, so Uh. Tim Roth in Reservoir Dog style. He just looks worse and worse over the course of the episode. He directed the episode, and I think um, brought such a flair to it. You know, he he had had directed a couple episodes last season also, Um, but just some of the, you know, longer takes and just the, the whole look as they were kind of patrolling through some corner of Los Angeles County suburbia. It just had such a great freaky look to it. And boy, I mean, you're so right about kind of calling out this interesting supernatural layer to the episode um, because, you know, so, someone seems to die and then almost seems to miraculously come <laughs> back to life. And, uh, you know, th- that's the kind of stuff where 
I remember in, in season one, I talked to you a little bit about my feeling that in this kind of intangible way, Barry was bringing up a lot of stuff I loved about The Sopranos. Um, and one thing I always loved about that HBO show was that there was this always kind of almost fairy tale subterranean layer to the show where yeah. there was this sort of realm of the supernatural, more in the kind of magical realism. Yes. Of and this episode felt a lot like that, right down to at the end of the episode, there's one moment that, without spoiling too much, it kind of violated my sense of reality just because it's kind of like, you know, there is a getaway car that seems uncannily close to where a thousand <laughs> cop cars are. Yeah. Um, but I kind of went along with it because just the visual of it was so compelling. And it was just another example of how um, Barry, besides being a very, very funny show when it wants to be, it's a great looking show. Too. It really is. And that moment, you know, the car is sitting there and Barry's standing there trying to decide whether to get in the car. And meanwhile, you know, 20 feet away, there are choppers and cop cars and <laughs> sirens and chaos. And it, you know, this may be just me being all like emotionally wishy-washy, but I was like, oh, he can never leave the war behind. You know, like it's it's really this, it it, it will never leave him. You know, this peak. A chill just went down my spine, Krista. <laughs> wow. The I hadn't even really thought about that, but you're so right. That That is exactly the kind of motif that it is conjuring up. Yes. Oh, wow. And it's just this, you know, you first forget like this is a man with severe PTSD and you know he is trying so hard to let that go but then you find out later and he's tried this you know periodically like the moments when he does his best acting is when he's channeling the 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 truly tragic and terrible and terrifying circumstances that he had to go through as a soldier. Do you think also Kristen one interesting thing about this episode just thinking about it in the context of the show and where it's kind of gone with the character um it, it makes me think a little bit of the role that michael sheen's been playing this season on the good fight the best <laughs> show on television yes. um which i only bring up to, to point out that as that season has continued onwards it's become more and more clear that michael sheen and what he represents he is an explicitly trumpy figure who talks a lot about hanging out with roy Cohn. that he is kind of a virus that everyone is catching yes that the, the longer he is there the more people either become like him or sort of pay fealty to him and what you just said made me wonder if on some level is that kind of the story of what Barry is doing this season because you know you sort of have this cop who seemed to be you know a cop who was doing stuff for the right reason that was trying to avenge his partner but once he finds out who Barry is he then wants him to kill someone right and in turn Barry goes to this house this this dad and uh, you know this 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 daughter um, who seemed like a normal Los Angeles uh, father-daughter pair and almost like his presence seems to turn them into these <laughs> revenant figures. I mean, she's doing this incredible like uh, martial arts movie flying off of yes. walls and everything like that. It's just, I don't know what you said about the war never leaves him. It's kind of like he also brings the war with him. Or it's wherever so he goes. true. And it really is like, I do worry about, uh, you know, the people in his non murdering life you know like his his <laughs> girlfriend and his acting teacher and all that like eventually i i don't think there's going to be a way for him to stop himself from revealing either you know purposely but probably uh with no control over it revealing you know the deep well of rage and despair and violence that lives within him and you know it's not going to be good for anyone <laughs> yeah 
And 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 don't you think though also that when he does that, when he kind of reveals his deepest darkest truth, like he's just gonna hear the sound of applause, like it's just gonna be <laughs> like, like like wow, Barry, what a yeah. what a performance you put on. <laughs> well, that's what's so incredible too. Yeah, it's just gonna be like Cousineau giving him a high five, you know, and it's it's really an unusual like the whole show you know, initially just sounds so like, oh, he's a hitman who wants to be a star. And it's like, wah, 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 you know, sounds so like <laughs> silly and stupid. But the the fact that they've actually turned it into this really intense and emotional, but also incredibly funny show is just, you know, I'm glad that it got another season. I'm, you know, now I can say that, but I am, I also don't want it to go on forever because I think it needs to come to basically a tragic end. Mm -hmm. um, Barry continues to air Sundays on HBO and I'm just now realizing live as we're recording this Kristen that this episode aired the same night as uh, the Game of Thrones episode that is going to be an 80 minute long battle episode uh, you, you and I have not seen that episode at the time of this recording but what a fun night for HBO viewers <laughs> just, just non-stop tension and presumably hor horrific bloodshed for two, for two and a half straight hours good times um, Kristen, let's shift gears a little bit, uh, go a little bit eastwards into the desert, which is the setting of the next show that we are going to talk about. Uh, Chambers just debuted on Netflix. Uh, it's 10 episode first season. I think the best way I can describe this is to say that it is a horror show, although it's it kind of falls under the branch of the kind of teen drama with a supernatural element uh, that you either absolutely love or cannot stand. Um, the show stars Sylvia. Von Alira Rose as Sasha, who is a, a teen girl who, right as she is about to go all the way with her boyfriend, something very bad happens, an unexpected heart attack. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Just so happens there is a perfect organ donor for her, another <laughs> teen girl who died uh, right nearby in the much fancier part of town. Sure. Um, she wakes up. She has a new heart. What could go wrong? Literally everything, um, because <laughs> according to the rules of uh, general horror mysticism, um, she is now experiencing visions from this dead girl's yes. life. There is an elaborate mystery about what precisely happened to her. But the core of the show, at least initially, Kristen, is kind of the classic socioeconomic crisscross. Um, Sasha and her uncle uh, live in a not-so-great corner of Arizona. Um, they are both, uh, I, I believe, uh, descendants of the Navajo Nation. Um, they go and meet the dead girl's parents, uh, who are Uma Thurman and Tony Goldwyn, just the absolute vision of like Southwest one percenters. They live in this crazy, awesome, modernist mansion that has a kind of room I've never seen before. It's just sort of like a a, a viewing platform. Is is that <laughs> yeah. what you would call it? With, yeah. a, with, with, with a window on it? It's just like a one glass wall overlooking the desert for, you know, for peak dust storm viewing. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 all it's for, seemingly, <laughs> is to like marvel at the demonic dust storms that occasionally get sort of pushed, uh, get, get uh, pushed across the landscape. Um, the debut episode of Chambers, I really, really loved. It was directed by Alfonso Gomez Rajon, who a lot of people will know his work. Um, he did really all the standout episodes in the early seasons of American Horror Story, and he brings such a kind of style and swagger and unsettling paranoia to this material 
ethereal. It's almost kind of as, as if you're watching a Nicholas Rogue movie um, shot in and around Albuquerque, I believe. Like if you're a fan of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, this show's just visual palette is very similar to that. All these kind of big skies and the desert and um, just a great setting. Um, there are 10 episodes in the season, Kristen, <laughs> and I, I, I watched all of them and I'm glad I did because wow, does it have an insane ending. Um, but I kind of want to hear what you think about this show because I think that you might have been less hot, less hot on it than uh, I yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, I went into it, you know, having seen the trailer, I'm like, okay, here's all I, all I want. I want it to be about a serial killer's heart being transplanted into an innocent girl's body. <laughs> like that's, you know, when you have a spooky transplant drama, this is what I want. And, you know, while it's not exactly that, it certainly does fulfill the urge of like, okay, well, she's got this heart in her now and bad things are happening. What's going on? Is she possessed? Whatever. Um, so, I did enjoy the setup being very sort of uh, old school horror movie, like, uh-oh, you're about to have sex. You know this isn't going to go well for yep. you, yep. girl in horror film. Um, and then, of course, it does not go well for her. I did think there was there were a lot of sort of funny touches, at least in the in the first few episodes. Like, I love when she gets into her boyfriend's car at first, they're playing Still Ill by the Smiths. And then later, um, when she's, uh, this is in a couple episodes, when they're trying to investigate what really happened to the dead girl who donated her heart, the, they see a video of the dead girl dancing to the Stone Roses song, I Want to Be Adored, which is uh, also includes a line about, like, basically, basically being possessed by the devil. So um, there are a lot of these little subtle, not subtle uh, hints. But I did think that it it kind of quickly went from like, oh, this could be, you know, an interesting smart show to now it's just getting weird for weird sake. <laughs> I was in intrigued enough that I wanted to see more. And I did eventually jump ahead to the last episode, just, you know, impatiently jump ahead. I'm like, okay, where is this going? And the ending is quite cuckoo banana pants. And intriguing. I'm definitely not going to keep watching. But I feel like if you enjoyed the OA, this might be for you. What do you think? Where Are you an OA person? You know, uh, I, I I am not. Uh, that is definitely one of those Netflix shows where I watched two minutes of it and immediately was just like, I'm good. Um, yeah, which, which, which which I think happens sometimes, especially with Netflix shows. It's yeah. that kind of thing where, like, I, I, I look at it and I realize there's 10 more episodes of this and I'm like, nope, no thanks. Nope. Um, but I do know people who liked it. It's interesting you, you make that comparison, Kristen, because I think you're probably pretty spot on there. Um, for me, it was a little bit more like this is something that this is something that I think only really happens with Netflix the first couple episodes are so well done and cinematic in a way that just feels really deeply considered like there's not really a scene in the first couple episodes that feels like it's in there for no reason and there's right. just such a rich um, they're just rich visuals there's a whole kind of dinner scene between Sasha and her uncle uh, and the family of the dead girl and it's all shot in just incredible close-up like you were just right up there in these people's faces and in a really awkward freaky way and it's just fascinating and really fun you know it's the kind of um supernatural b pulp made with a just incredible sense of style um but this kind of has a little bit of the problem of maybe being a movie idea that got yeah. overstretched because everything has to be a tv show now um and you do really feel that in the middle of the season 
it doesn't surprise me that you skipped ahead and i suspect some people might um all that being said this is really a vibe that works for me <laughs> I kind of just love that whole Southwest aesthetic. There's an episode where people are going off to um, Antelope Valley and going to canyons and doing ayahuasca and having visions out in the wide open. Uh, I also, I, I think that one thing that kind of got me through the season is that uh, the main uh, actress, Savannah Lira Rose, um, who this is kind of her first big thing ever, um, is really, really good and yeah. really sharp. Um, she kind of just brings a lot of... Um, eccentricity and personality even when the lines get a little sub CW teen reboot level <laughs> um, you know she's always kind of really bringing it and at the same time Kristen Uma Thurman who I don't think I've really enjoyed in much of anything since the Kill Bill movies. Um, she is kind of playing a character I tend to not like in this era of television where she starts the season grieving and that's kind of all she does. Right. Um, it's, it's very, uh, if, if you ever watched uh, the AMC show, The Killing, it's kind of the show moves at that, at that pace where yeah. if someone is sad in the first episode about something, that is their main character trait. Yeah. But she's really, really good. And as the season goes along, you kind of see some of her best uh, acting so it's I, I do think that there is an audience for this it might be kind of young goths who like <laughs> bright colors and I'm not sure if that viewership exists but um, I, I do think that there may be a kind of corner of the Netflix uh, subscribership that will dig this show you know it's interesting because I also love Tony Goldwyn who plays uh, Uma Thurman's husband and he's the dad of the girl who died and and he he's living his best life like he's you know obviously he's just this handsome charming guy and but he goes right to creepy pretty much right away <laughs> but it's like it's that that deceptive creepy where it's like but he seems nice but isn't that a little creepy you know and he does that very well and I I enjoy him um, on that level you know I was talking to our former colleague Jessica Shaw about this show because she had watched some of it too and and she said something that I think really resonated because it's so true she said it's the kind of show that like 10 years ago we would have all been really excited about <laughs> but now it's like a dime a dozen especially on Netflix that said yeah. a lot of these dime a dozen shows especially the genre ones do find an audience so I think you're right I think people will find it it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea yeah um but i will say also that uh you know you, you brought up tony goldwyn who is giving such a particular performance <laughs> you you find out that he is really involved in a local organization that i believe is called the southwest annex foundation a kind of spiritual wellness center sure. that looks more and more orwellian although calling it orwellian underrates the fact that it looks like a chill place to hang out you know everyone's <laughs> th there's like a nice garden and a terrarium and it kind of it really has that rehab as utopia um, visual aesthetic to it and the one interesting thing that this show gets at as it goes along it it, it, it kind of loses a lot of the potentially interesting um, threads it sets up early on I mean this is a show about a Native American teenager who almost kind of starts to find herself being taken over by the dead rich white girl inside yes. of her and there's there's a great show there and I'm not sure this show is quite there yet um, but the show does kind of <laughs> it, you know for a show where you're kind of thinking 
thinking, oh, is it going to do the lame thing where every Native American is tapped into some sort of mystical realm? Um, it all it almost goes in the exact opposite direction, where it seems to imply, no, the way weirder stuff is happening with like the woo-woo white people across <laughs> town. Like, like they, they're tapped into some bad energies that go so far beyond like any normal sort of um, horror movie thing. So I, I yeah, I, I think that you're right to say that like had the show come out 10 years ago, it might have seemed a little more special, but there is, there's something going on here. And, yeah. You know, I, I, I wonder if whether it's the kind of, you know, whether it kind of falls into that kind of teen drama category for Netflix. Um, but I, I think that like there will be people who dig it, even if everyone agrees that it's probably three or four episodes too long. <laughs> exactly. So Chambers is streaming now on Netflix. Uh, check it out if you like crazy things. Uh, and our final show of the week is also on Netflix. Dead to Me is a new comedy premiering Friday, May 3rd, and it stars Christina Applegate as Jen, a widow and mother of two who is still reeling after her husband was killed by a hit-and-run driver. Jen's primary emotion besides grief is anger. She's mad at the person who ran her husband over, she's mad at the cops who haven't found the driver, and she's generally mad at the world for handing her such a raw deal. But Jen's life begins to change for the better when she meets Judy, played by Linda Cardellini, a flighty and free-spirited woman who is also dealing with her own loss. Okay, so the please do not reveal list that Netflix sent to writers about this show is absurdly comprehensive, so we're going to have to be a bit vague here. But what we can say is this. Jen and Judy form a wonderful friendship, but there is a big secret, capital B, capital S, that hangs over them both and threatens to destroy their relationship. So, Darren, I liked a lot about Dead to Me. Christina Applegate is, like, tour de force brilliant as Jen. This is a role that showcases her well-known comedic skills, but also really allows her to do some impressively dramatic work as well. And I actually really love the friendship between Jen and Judy. It's still all too rare for TV to offer an honest, complex, thoughtful representation of a relationship between two grown women bonding over life's challenges and disappointments. Uh, my biggest problem with Dead to Me, though, is probably what the show is technically about, which is the aforementioned big secret and all this sort of manufactured suspense over whether or not it will be revealed. I watched all 10 episodes. I wish I could say that by the end, the show starts to move away from the mystery of it all and just turns its focus to the friendship, but it doesn't. So on the one hand, I want to recommend it because Applegate is so good. But on the other hand, it has some big problems. So Darren, help me out here. What would you say about I'm not sure I have much help to offer you, Kristen, though I really do agree that Christina Applegate is giving such a wonderful performance right off the bat and really not a false moment even as she is juggling um, real sharp comedy with incredibly believable and never over the top, um, you know, grief and melancholy and, you know, all of the things that I think a normal person her age feels mixed with this horrible loss that she's experienced. Um, also do want to call out Linda Cardellini. What a month she is having uh, between <laughs> Curse of La Llorona. I think she's in the new Avengers movie as one of the, you know, 5,000 people who's not an Avenger um, and now this uh, I, I love seeing her get such a, a career resurgence but you know what you're kind of talking about Kristen the big secret that is the plot of the show yeah I, I struggled with it a, quite a bit because the first episode immediately sets up 
this uh, really invigorating uh, world. You know, they're kind of living in this Orange County area where everything is bright, but nobody is happy. And even individual dialogue scenes can really run the gamut between feeling really cheerful and charming and cutting to the core of the fact that these people have kind of lost something. Um, And then you get to the twist and it felt a little bit to me like, wow, what a cool concept. Um, and you sure could go a lot of directions with this, but if all you're doing with it is just sort of, you're awkwardly stamping that over scenes that have nothing to do with it. Yes. Um, then you get to this point and I already felt this happening a little bit in the second episode where you're not getting the perhaps, I don't want to say lighter hearted, but you're not getting the more sort of straightforward human pleasures of what this scene appears to be about. And you're not really justifying the fair to say darker and stranger implications of what this secret makes it about. And it's interesting to hear you say that you kind of felt like the show never quite evolved beyond that. Um, because it's funny us talking about this the same week we're talking about Chambers. I worry sometimes that with Netflix shows, because they make their entire season ahead of time, this is not just this is not just a Netflix problem, but specifically you experience it when they release it kind of all at once. Um, one of the great things about television, said the TV critic loudly from the mountaintop, <laughs> is the, the feeling of discovery. And it's yes. kind of the feeling of, okay, we had this idea for a show. Now we're four episodes in. What's this show actually about? Um, and right. maybe it's not what we thought it was about. And maybe the things that we were so committed to are less interesting or less compelling than the stuff that is actually in motion now. And I wonder if that's it's kind of the problem with Chambers, I think, that it sort of has to stay deeply attached to the story stuff that it sets up in the first episode without much chance of really exploring around. And it sounds like you're saying, is, is that kind of a problem here in a very different context? That it, 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 it doesn't quite figure out how to evolve past the capital B, big, capital S secret? Exactly. And it's too bad because, I mean, I really did like this relationship between the two women. And essentially, every time they were just talking about stuff that wasn't related to the big secret or to anything tangential to the big secret, I just enjoyed seeing them, you know, together. And I thought that was interesting. And by the end, they're setting up another big secret. And it's just like, come on, you guys. Really? Really? Well, it's another sort of mystery that's going to have to, it's a whole thing. And it just, (laughs) it kind of bums me out because there are a lot of interesting ideas here that are raised about just women and grown women, uh, you know, in the world, how they're uh, deal with each other and how they, uh, how they, are treated by men. You know, at one point, uh, a character sort of dismissively refers to Judy as crazy. And Jen, you know, gets really worked up about that. Like, you know, men need to stop saying crazy. The way they label pe- women as crazy or hysterical, you know, it's diminishing as them as a person and it's demeaning them for their emotions. And it should be, that word should be banned just like the R word, you know? And like, that's an interesting idea. But then it all comes back to, oh, but is the big secret going to be revealed? <laughs> it's like, I don't care. And I, do, you know, I felt this way about uh, Shrill, which was, you know, Hulu show with A.D. Bryant. I wanted that show to start in like 
a mindset of season two where like, okay, our character's already gone through sort of the emotional breakthrough of, hey, even though I'm overweight, I'm a person with worth and I'm going to live my life that way. I wish that this show had started, you know, kind of past you know, gotten through the whole, oh, there's a big secret and, uh, and then just moved on to like, okay, well, what do we do about it now? What do we, yeah. how do we live our lives now? Because that was what was interesting to me. And it's too bad because, you know, both of these actresses are great. And this could have been a really, uh, you know, wonderful showcase for them just to tell regular human stories, as you put it. And instead it's, it's a lot of just, you know, kooky mystery and you know fake outs and oh coincidences and oh it's about to be revealed oh my god you know and i just i i can't that said christina applegate is just great and i i I don't want people not to see this because she's really good but i you know it certainly sets up the ending sets up a season two and i i I would imagine that if there's any degree of interest in it, that it will get a season two. And it just kind of bums me out because I want her to be free to do a better show. It's funny that uh, what you're kind of describing with what happens in the season, and I was already getting kind of a gleaning of it from the early episodes that I watched. There's something that's kind of happened with TV storytelling the last few years where the notion of something being serialized, that kind of is what most TV is now. In fact, using the word serialized, I think that's almost become meaningless for a younger crew of people who kind of assume and understand that people on these shows are very aware of what's happened to them before. But there is a kind of like hysterical continuity where, to to use a word that uh, I I would never use to describe any of the characters on this show, but... um, it's almost like all anyone ever has in their mind is like the stuff that has happened before. And in this case, it's like the secret that has happened before. And it just feels very synthetic to me. It feels a little bit as if you're kind of turning what could be a a show about characters, what could be a show about these interactions that you're describing, in this case, this incredible dynamic between these two women, it always kind of turns it into a thriller or kind of into this ongoing story with tension that can feel a little phony. And it's it's too bad because, again, there's there's good people all around this show. I I, I think we can say, we can say that James Marsden is in the show. Yes, right? he is um, in the show. And his, his first appearance, I mean, I, I love him so much. I'm very glad he's seems to not be on Westworld anymore. I, I, I want him and his shining face to appear in like every TV show. Um, and I feel like he kind of has the right rhythm for the show and there right. are performers that do kind of figure out this really particular mix the show is going for of comedy and sensitive drama and mystery and all this other stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's troubling to see all this good stuff happening and feel like there's one obvious problem that yes. would fix it. <laughs> it's interesting because it does feel to me like something that a broadcast network would do to this concept. Like they would take this concept that could be so much more and say, no, no, it's got to be about the mystery. It's got to be about the secret. We're going to drive that home every week. And I wonder if Netflix, which, you know, up until now, and maybe still now, has been viewed as this, like, you know, creative haven where you can really try things and, and do new things. And, you know, creative freedom is is everything you could want. On the other hand, when they're making so much TV, are they just starting to have to fall back on some hacky tropes, you know? Yeah. And this is 
I expected better <laughs> of them. They could have turned this into something more interesting. And instead, they kind of like, you know, I don't know, you would see it on Fox or something. And well, and and I, I think what you're saying too, Kristen, is are they at a point now where um, yes, they are greenlighting all of these things, but they're also getting a million pitches. And so you walk into the room and you say a, a friendship love story between two women who've experienced loss. Uh, uh, okay, I, I, I'm not really hearing that. But also one of them blank 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 Ooh, okay now i get it that is a that is a hot concept yeah. okay wow yeah, yeah. And, you know it's it's a little it's a little bit of you know the the pitch session where you need to figure out how do i get this through that netflix yes. filter that has heard all this stuff um and you know sometimes that does result in fun television but yeah what you're saying about the concept first nature of this god it's so hard to talk about this show i know talking about this Spoiler. <laughs> and honestly, like maybe in a couple of weeks we can we can just have a quick conversation about what the you know quote unquote big spoilers were. Like honestly, at one point, I swear to God, one of them is like, do not reveal that so and so has a secret. It's like, has anyone at Netflix ever seen a TV show? Because everyone on a TV show has a secret. Just stop it. Anyway, yeah, it's. I guess I would say ultimately, you know, I think Christina Applegate's giving like a career performance. And if yeah. you like her, I think there's a lot to enjoy about this show. I think Linda Cardellini is great too. I just, you know, so it's probably worth checking out half hour episodes. I just, you know, they, they both deserve better. Dead to Me premieres May 3rd on Netflix. Excited to hear what everybody thinks about the blank, 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 blank. <laughs> that happens uh everyone we're, we're taking a quick break but when we come back i'll be talking to w kamau bell about his emmy winning show united shades of america darren i have a confession to make Kristen, tell me anything i am a terrible cook and i'm kind of afraid of cooking and so I have to say, when I got my first delivery of HelloFresh, I was a little afraid because basically the kitchen scares me. But I can tell you now that HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plants, and delivers step-by-step -step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can cook, eat, and enjoy. And I have to tell you, Darren, I didn't screw it up. Good for you, Kristen. Uh, let me tell you something. If you think you're a not-so-great cook, uh, I am someone who barely sustained myself on things that I usually burned in the kitchen when I was younger, <laughs> so HelloFresh has been a big shift for me. HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes, and believe me, I need simple recipes, but uh, it also does all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping, so you can focus on a healthier you and a happier family. Uh, there are three plans to choose from classic veggie and family with the option to switch between those uh, when your tastes change and in general HelloFresh helps you get out of the recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone by discovering new delicious recipes for instance Kristen yes uh, what am I doing making pork bibimbap rice bowls I don't I am know someone, I am someone who once unsuccessfully made macaroni and cheese but now HelloFresh has rescued me from all of that this week I made myself and my wife the pork bibimbap rice bowl recipe it was easy enough that i could do it and boy was it very tasty i feel that i have achieved something new in my family lineage by making pork <laughs> uh, pork bibimbap uh what's your experience been like well you know what 
last night we had the Presto Pesto Panko Chicken. And <laughs> honestly, as somebody who's a total neat freak and afraid of the kitchen, I really appreciated the fact that all the meals come together in 30 minutes or max. They only call for two pots and pans or fewer and require minimal cleanup, which I can attest to because I cleaned up the kitchen last night too. And the good thing is that uh, you can make family dinners, like you can avoid all the whining and the fussing because uh, HelloFresh has the picky eater kid tested family plan recipes. And I can tell you that Fred, my son, ate two helpings of the panko pesto chicken last night. <laughs> and you know that is basically for me a miracle. All the meals come together in 30 minutes max. Our experience could be your experience, listeners. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash EWBest80 and enter EWBest80. That's EWBest80. That's $80 off for your first month of HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com slash EWBest80, where you will enter EWBest80. Very excited to welcome this week's guest to Best of Shows. W. Kamau Bell is the host of United Shades of America on CNN. The fourth season of the docu-series started on Sunday. It airs 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and this season the Emmy-winning docu-series continues to explore the wide variety of cultures and communities that make up our country. Uh, sir, thanks so much for talking to us this week. Sir, this is official. Thanks for calling me sir. I'm so glad that this show is back on. I do sort of feel as if um, we talk about a lot of TV on this show that uh, I'm, I sometimes worry about whether it's good or bad for society. And I do really think that um, your project with United Shades of America, it's just so fascinating. Um, what's kind of new in season four? As I mentioned, you know, you're now officially a, a multiple prize winning series. Um, what did you kind of want to, uh, to do uh, with the series uh, in, in the new season? Uh, I mean, for me, this is about deepening the work we do and sharpening the work we do. And also, to be quite honest, like I had this amazing experience last year of going to Kenya with Anthony Bourdain. And we talked a lot about TV production and how and things he was like, here's what I had to do. And here's how you fight for it. And here and do that. And so and then, you know, of course, he passed away. But it was just it really felt like I was trying to honor those conversations with Tony and also honor all the conversations I have with people in airports and coffee shops and on street corners about what they love about United States. That's so fascinating to hear. I mean, like, is there anything in particular that uh, jumps out to you that you kind of learned from him or that those people in the airports kind of uh, ha had told you about that you really wanted to incorporate this season? You know, I think people are very clear that the show is, you know, it's funny to say like, people are clear that the show is educational and they like the learning and, you know, TV and learning don't always go together or when they do, it's not learning and entertainment, but <laughs> I'm a proud disciple of uh, Sesame Street. <laughs> so, like, I believe you can, like, learn and have a good time at the same time. So, I, you know, I've often thought of my career as sort of like Sesame Street for grownups. So, uh, you know, so for me, it's like we leaned into like things that we hadn't done before. Like, for example, we talk about racism on the show all the time, but this year is the first time we actually go, let's define the term racism. You know, like, it's just sort of like, <laughs> you know, or we have an episode about, uh, in Salt Lake City, about Mormons in the LGBTQ plus community. And I was like, you know what? Let's talk about the letters. Like, we say these letters all the time, but what do they mean? You know, so we just have this whole, and it's really done in the style of Sesame Street, of what these, the letters walk across the screen, like Sesame Street cartoons, and, and but they're holding, like, lesbian, bisexual, gay, asexual, an ally in a way that's sort of fun, but you actually learn what the letters are for those people who don't know. 
I love that. And, you know, one thing that I, I love the kind of Sesame Street comparison, um, you know, in the Hawaiian episode that you did last year, one of the things that I loved about that was that as much as you were kind of really in a wonderful and visceral way explaining, you know, the current situation, um, you know, there was just such a great uh, series of, in, of factoids about the history of Hawaii and the stuff that never really makes it into the into certainly into the history books that we had in grade school and, you know, in imperialism and annexation and all this stuff. Um, what are the challenges of kind of juggling that sort of history and that kind of informational uh, side of the show um, with kind of like, you know, making it you know interesting and, you know, entertaining? I mean, the challenge isn't, for me isn't making it entertaining. It's making sure that we're correct in what we're saying. Because I think the worst thing you can do in those situations when you're trying to be educational is be wrong or be like, mm -hmm. that's not exactly, or actually not nuanced about it. Like making sure that it's like that the people who are from there who talk about this stuff every day and who know it is a part of their DNA are like, you almost got it, but that's not it. So for me, the biggest thing to make sure is that we get people, experts, talk to several different sources and go, because we can't do it the justice of people who live this life, but it's like, does this seem like, for somebody who doesn't know this information, are we delivering something that is actually, that it feels true to you? And so that's the biggest, the biggest, the, it's not hard to make it entertaining. Sometimes the challenge is like, you know, from a TV producer's side, they're like, we don't need to do all this stuff. And I'm just like, yes, no, this is what we do. We do need to do all this stuff. <laughs> uh, you talked a little bit about um, going uh, going into the LGBT community in Salt Lake City. Um, what other stories this season are you, are you especially excited about? Or, uh, you know, other um, uh, episodes that you that you feel like uh, were, were especially kind of exciting to work on for season four? You know, we the uh, you know we have an episode that's uh, I, I, one of the things that happens to me as a recurring feature of my life is like, like when I'm talking about airports and coffee shops and street corners and also just on online on Twitter is that white people will say to me, "What do I do? What do I do? How do I help? Well, I did, I want to help. Who do I retweet?" And so there's an episode, episode two that airs uh, this weekend is uh, called Not All White People, which is about white people activism in Seattle and Tacoma, about several different ways for white people to answer the question, like, what do I do? Well, here's some, here's some options on the table of what you can do. And that mm -hmm. episode actually features Alicia Garza, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and a friend of mine in that, because, you know, nobody's a bigger expert on what white people should do than her. Mm hmm. Um, that's really wonderful. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of leads me into something that I always wonder about with this show. Um, you know, in, in the first few seasons, I've kind of loved the fact that on one hand, you're able to kind of um, go into these communities that I think even the most casual viewer will know about, whether it's the Native Hawaiians, whether it's, uh, you know, San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, at the same time, there's also episodes where it feels as if part of the mission is exploring communities or cultures that are a little more invisible sometimes when it comes to you know, to mainstream coverage. Um, where do the kind of ideas come from? Uh, well, what's it like when you're kind of sitting down for a new season and deciding, you know, what you're going to explore and, you know, what you're going to kind of focus on for individual episodes? I mean, we're really, when we start to conceive the episodes, it really is sort of like best idea wins and ideas can come from anybody in the building and anybody I run into in the streets. Like we did the episode about the sick community, uh, sick, you know, the sick religion. And, that came from a guy on Twitter being like, good episode on the Muslim faith. Do one about the Sikh religion. And I was like, you're making a good point, sir. Damn. And so like that, <laughs> we like, you know, and he was, and he actually was in the episode Harpreet Singh. And so this season, somebody said like, nobody talking about the Hmong community 
in St. Paul in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I was like, the what, who, now, what, now, what, now, what, who, what, now? Like, I, you know, and so we have a whole episode about Hmong um, Americans and Hmong people, or a lot of them are from Laos, and they fought in the secret war that, our, that the CIA it lit and recruited them to fight in. That was a part of the Vietnam War. And it's a whole history that I had no knowledge of and is, again, not in most people's history books in, in elementary school. And so for me, it was like somebody said this thing. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But that it's but that sounds intriguing to me, and so now like I that episode's one of those classic ones where you were watching me learn in real time about what this thing is about uh, the significant portions of Americans that are directly connected to our history that we don't talk about, especially when we talk about the Vietnam War. And th- there's such a feeling of discovery attached to a lot of episodes of the show like that of kind of, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you kind of saying that you were experiencing that in first person, because as a viewer, I think that's really key to a lot of the show um, is this sort of feeling of how did I not know about this? And there's literally too much to know about this now. Like, uh, you know, there's there's no end to the sort of information that is worth kind of learning about this community or about this culture. Um, are there any other kind of moments in this new season that really surprised you, whether it's kind of people you talked to? to or you know whole cultures like that where you just felt like i need to learn more about this now yeah i mean i think that like we um you know like i said we talked about the salt lake city like i we did a like we the salt lake city episode was really about like uh the mormon faith's relationship to the lgbtq plus community but a part of that meant learning about the mormon faith and i think it was really important to me even though the episode inevitably is critical of how the LGBT community, LGBTQ plus community, is not embraced by the Mormon faith. They keep working on getting there, but they're not there. They're not close to there yet. But it has also created like I don't also don't I also want people to learn about what the Mormon faith is. Like I don't know a lot about it either. So for me, it was like I wanted to give their religion their time to sort of go. You basically, as we talk about in the episode, this is the only religion you're allowed to make fun of free of consequences. You know, you can even make a musical about it, making fun of it free of consequences. Whereas other religions, if you do that, you will hear from them and they will tell you to stop. Uh, and so, but it was like, well, what is this religion about? And really trying to like honor the fact that it's just another religion. It's a part of Christianity. Whether or not you think it's weird or not, remember that a lot of us grew up thinking that a bush caught fire and talked to people, you know, so mm-hmm. let's not totally let's not just make fun of this thing because it's fun to make fun of let's actually learn about it so for me that was an important episode it's like even though i'm being critical of their relationship with the community i also create space to learn about them um you know i i think it was uh, in some of your uh, discussions about last season you mentioned how one theme of the show had been that black is not a monolith um and i think one thing i like so much about your show is that it seems to, like really you're making it clear that no aspect of america is a monolith that even the idea of america just goes in so many i mean it is just it, it seemingly infinite kinds of people and and cultures and, and religions and ethnicities and everything um I'd be intrigued to know, you know, from when you started working on this show to now, um, a few things have happened in this country uh, th- that have <laughs> I th- <laughs> I, th- that I think have tested a lot of people's um, resolve and feelings and, and beliefs. Uh, what's it been like working on this show over the last few years? Um, has it been cathartic? Has it been kind of challenging? I mean, it's it's been it's. I feel like I'm I'm like in school in a way that I really wasn't in school before. Like, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot about a lot of different things. And now there's not a deep level of knowledge about all these things, but I have a lot more knowledge about this country and how it works in different communities. 
the thing that is ultimately frustrating is that I feel like at the end of every episode, we're like, so let's be nicer to each other. And America's <laughs> like, nah. <laughs> there's, sort of, there's sort of an institutional frustration. Like, you guys, I know you're watching the show, but I don't think we're really getting it. Like, you know, so uh, there is sort of like this weird frustration about the fact that it not is not exactly doing the things I want it to do. And so that's, you know, you, I, I'm expecting too much from a TV show, obviously. But, like, I really do feel like that no matter who we're talking to at the end of the episode, we're like, hey, can we just, can we guys, can we just be cool? And right now we're in a period of this country where it's not, it's the leadership of this country is like not, it's not being cool to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely uh, fair to say. Um, I'd be intrigued to know, sir. Uh, um, and I'm, 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 I'm calling you sir again. And, and it's the last time that I would yeah. do that unless you like it. Um, but, uh, but um, I was a great fan of your TV series that was on FX and then on FXX, uh, Totally Biased. Um, what was that experience kind of like for you? And was it sort of a learning experience that informed uh, this series at all? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that came out of that is that I had never done these sort of like man on the street live interviews until I did Totally Biased and actually didn't really like them because I felt like people were sort of made fun of. Like, you stopped to talk to me, now we're going to make fun of you. And so for me, like, but through that show, Chris Rock was an executive producer on that show. He's like, you got to get out there and meet people because nobody knows who you are, basically. And so that is the most fun part of the show for me and the part that, like, critics often said is the best part of my contribution, my best contribution to the show. And so I don't think I would have had the ability to do United Shades or to think I could do United Shades without the example of being doing Man on Street pieces from Totally Biased. And it really taught me, it was like a sort of a, you know, it's like, it's like learn on the, it's like being a, a, a like a like in a kitchen at a fancy restaurant. You start out washing dishes and then you end up being like the executive chef. So for me, like I went in there with very little knowledge, and so it taught me how to be an executive producer, going from zero to like oh I feel good in this role now. So it was a, mm -hmm. and also I got to work with a lot of my friends, and it's fun to see like a lot of those friends who are on the show who are comedians, like their careers have moved on, and like Parna Nancherla was on that show, and she was in a Super Bowl commercial and on corporate. Hari Kondabolu did the documentary. He was a great comedian, a good friend of mine, did uh, the Apu documentary. Guy Branham had a show on True TV, but, you know, wrote a book. And so to see people who worked on that show, Lindy West was her first TV appearance was on Totally Biased. And now she's about to have season two of Shrill. And so for me, it was like, that's the other thing. It's like people who are on the show. Trevor Noah was like his second TV appearance or maybe first TV appearance was on Totally Biased <laughs> in America. And so for me, a lot of people who've been on that show have gone on to do great things. So it feels like it's a, even though it did not last, it had a significant impact. Well, absolutely. And uh, that's really intriguing to hear, though, that for you, just the kind of man on the street stuff was so transformative. Like, was that kind of like, had you done anything previous in your career that had prepared you for that? Or was that really just kind of like, okay, I have to get out there and kind of learn this as we go now? No, it, I had not. I mean, every comedian at some point gets handed a microphone out in the street corner. It's just a sort of a thing you have to do sometimes. But I had not done it like that. And it really was like Chris Rock who was like, you have to do it. This is basically like, this is a thing comedians do. You're a comedian. Go do it. And I'm like, okay, Mr. Chris Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if he's telling that to you, then you have to. But, um, uh, you know, obviously now the interviews are such a huge part of your show. Um, I guess as someone who has to do interviews, fortunately never on camera, um, what's your kind of process like for those now? Uh, you know, is, there, is it a lot of heavy preparation? Do you like to kind of go in um, and, and kind of, you know, let the conversation with, with people flow in, in a lot of directions? I mean, you read, like, you know, I have producers who give me, like, you know, there's, like, articles or people's bios, and, and then you sort of go, I go to producers, like, what are the things you want to make sure that we get out of this because you talk to these people? 
And then it's about going in there and, and sort of like shutting up and letting people talk. So you may not get to all the things, but it's more important that people get to the to have the conversation they want to have and that I encourage that conversation. A lot of the encouragement is like not, it's just shutting up and letting them talk. Sometimes I will hear myself want to interrupt or hear myself go, I had a joke for that thing they're saying. And, I, and I'm like, shut up, come like on. So <laughs> it's really about shutting up, asking the good, knowing what people want to talk about and then shutting up and letting them talk. Yeah, I think um, uh, Robert Caro, who's like one of the great journalists, he has a great thing about interviews where like when he's interviewing someone, he'll just be constantly writing on his paper, like, like be quiet just to kind of let them speak <laughs> and, and let them uh, continue. So it's, it's interesting to hear that yep. like you've kind of experienced that. Um, maybe this wouldn't quite fit into uh, your current show as it's constructed, but do you have a kind of dream interview subject or a kind of a dream person that you'd love to interview in connection to some of the stuff that uh, your show has covered? I mean, we we did a in season one. We did an episode about Mexican immigrants living in East LA and Boyle Heights in 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 Los Angeles. And I was like, "Hey, Zach De La Rocha, he's around here somewhere, right?" <laughs> so like, I feel like Zach De La Rocha is my white whale interview. I'm I'm a fan of Rage Against the Machine. He's also a political person, so I know he thinks deep political thoughts. He does a lot. He has done a lot of activism in his career. Uh, he's sort of an enigma. Uh, He's the only member of Rage Against the Machine who, find, who feels like, I don't need to work. So I just feel like he's somebody, I find him to be a compelling figure, and he's somebody that I would like to talk to. The great thing about the show is I've been able to book people on the show who I did want to talk to this season. Our, in our Washington, D.C. episode, You know, we got to book Henry Rollins as one of the guests because he's from D.C., and I've been a fan of his since like the 90s and Liar and stuff. So it's fun to actually be able to hang out with him, and he hung out. And so I feel like... I've been lucky that I have been able to put these people, been able to get through the show. I've been able to connect with people that I was big fans of. But yeah, I'd say Zach DeRocha and or Denzel Washington, but that's mostly just because I like Denzel Washington. <laughs> of course, of course. I, I, I was kind of wondering, yeah, will the podcast ever return with the definitive five-hour interview with uh, Denzel Washington? <laughs> I, I, I always say the podcast will come back. It's a hiatus. It may come back when we're 70. I don't know <laughs> that we'll get the five-hour Denzel interview. I don't know. That he, I think we sort of tried any inroads to try to book him. It's been clear that I think he's like, no, nah, I'm good. So, uh, but you know, I, the podcast exists. Whether you know, as long as he doesn't tell us to stop doing it, we'll be back. Uh-huh. Um, Kamau, uh huh. Come out. We like to ask all of our uh, guests here on the show two questions about uh, their um, relationship with television. First of all, uh, what's the first TV show that you remember really loving, or the first TV show that you recall really being kind of obsessed with? Uh, the first TV show I was obsessed with, and this is uh, old school, uh, kids, there used to be a show called The Incredible Hulk that aired on CBS before the Dukes of Hazard in Dallas, starring <laughs> Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno as The Incredible Hulk. And I used to dress up in Hulk clothes when I watched the show, and my mom has Polaroid pictures of it that you will never see. You were, you were in, in, in Hulk clothes, like when he's in like Hulk form, you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I had, my mom had like old clothes. She would, she cut up some old clothes of mine so I could wear like old ripped clothes while I watched the Incredible Hulk TV show. Cause That's I'm, incredible. I was at cosplay before Comic-Con, before cosplay. I'm old school. I'm an old school blurred. I, I'm a, I'm a blurred emeritus. And it's funny. I'm a blurred emeritus. It's funny because I, I worry sometimes that that show, at least among the kind of younger generation of people who've only experienced, I mean, they, they've now experienced the character in like five movies or something, but that was yeah, really yeah. kind of a big deal for just having any superhero anything on, on TV at, 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 uh, at uh, the time. I, it is one of the reasons why I love, I mean, I think that it goes without saying that uh, Mark Ruffalo is the best Bruce 
and they finally figured out how to do a CGI Hulk through his in those movies, through the Avenger movies. But I just feel like it should be a guy. It should be yeah. a guy. It should probably be Lou Ferrigno. But I feel like Lou Ferrigno, as a real person playing the Hulk, brought a lot more to it than the CGI. And I just feel like I, that's my one critique of the Avengers movies. Well, not my one, but the one of my my one Hulk critique is that I just feel like it should be an actual person playing the Hulk because. The, the Hulk, I think the CGI makes him look more like a monster and less like an actual like extension of Bruce Banner's humanity. I've gotten too geeky in this conversation. I no, no, no. That. I'm listen. I am. I, I'm totally with you. It's just, it's just kind of incredible because I mean, like, as much as people are sort of like, oh, but in the comics he's supposed to be way bigger. He's ten feet tall. All that. It's like, yeah, but like in motion picture form, when it's a person, yeah. it's just so much more. It, it is human, as you said, even if he is. You I, know. Get, yeah. I got news for you, kids. <laughs> Sir Ian McKellen is not as tall as Gandalf. They're able to no. do things. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I think that, like the same thing with like uh, in the Avengers: Infinity, uh, uh, the, Infin- the 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 one with uh, Josh Brolin plays Thanos, but it's clearly Josh Brolin. But so I'm not saying they can't use some CGI, but I yeah. think it should be based on an actor's performance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I, I'm glad that we had you on the record for that. That's what I was hoping for yeah. uh, from this interview. Um, second question: uh, What TV are you watching now that you're really uh, that you're really enjoying, or a- any kind of newer TV shows that you've really um, uh, started to fall in love with? Uh, I'm a huge uh, stan of The Good Place. Uh, I it's my it's like I consider watching The Good Place to be the closest I get to going to church. So like I'm a huge uh, fan of The Good Place. I'm also a huge fan of like like documentaries. So like that uh, the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos documentary is like that's my jam. <laughs> like I like, I can just watch it over and over again. I know it's not a TV show, but it is something that aired on TV that I like a lot. The great thing about YouTube is that there's any number of interviews and coverage of her that you can watch when people thought she actually had invented a, mag- a magic <laughs> box, which is really fun to watch now. Yeah. United Shades of America is airing at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Sundays on CNN. Uh, thank you again so much for talking to us this week and very excited to see um, all the episodes in, in season four. Thank you for having me. That wraps it up for this week's edition of Best of Shows. Thanks again so much to our guest, W. Kamau Bell, for talking to us about United Shades of America. Hey, if you like listening to this podcast, and we really hope you do because we love talking to each other all about television, give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, we wherever you find your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, Spotify. We love to hear from you. We are critics, so that means, unfortunately, we have to accept criticism. Uh, and you can reach us directly on Twitter, she's at Chris. G. Baldwin. I'm at Darren Franich. Uh, if you check out Chambers, if you check out Dead to Me, if you check out the most recent episode of Barry, or you just want to talk in general about television, you can find us on there. I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So goodbye. <laughs>